So I had a bit of time. And as the baby cried, I said, Gary, quiet, please. Welcome back to season two of the Business Culture Podcast, a platform to learn through the power of context and story. It's great to be back with you. This season is all about impact. I'll be chatting to impact makers across industries and geographies to understand how they have made true impact on their customers, colleagues, and communities. In this episode, I got to chat with Dale Hayes, former European number one and fondly known as the voice of golf in South Africa. If you've ever watched a European or Sunshine Tour event, chances are you've heard Dale's voice, a man with a story for every occasion, a wicked sense of humor, and a remarkable CV in golf. A big thank you goes to our friends at Steenberg Golf Club for hosting this podcast. Head over to steenberggolfclub.co.za and experience what this wonderful golf destination has to offer. Let's hear Dale's story. Dale, thanks very much, obviously, for, for your time. It's, it's always great to speak to a personality of, of your type and kind in, in South African golf and in South African sport. You know, your career is, is, is relatively well documented uh, in terms of the professional days. And what I was really curious to know is as you kind of progressed through, uh, through the professional ranks and then ultimately leaving the professional game, what, what that was like, what that transition was like and, and what it was like to be a professional, I guess, back in, in, in the earlier days and, and then moving into commentary and things like that. You know, I, from, the, from the time that I was very little, uh, I was always going to be a professional golfer. My, my dad was the professional at Swatko Country Club. So I grew up on the side of the golf course, myself and my brothers. And, uh, you know, I think it was a given that we were all going to become professional golfers. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I loved the, comp- the competitive side. I loved the competition. And, and um, you know, I, I, as a kid and as a youngster, I worked, I worked really hard on, 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 on my game and playing golf and everything. And, you know, I, as a... A young amateur, when I was sort of 16, 17, 18 years old, you know, I had, I had phenomenal success, both here in South Africa and internationally. And, you know, it came early and it came very easily for me. And, and I think that was, you know, as it turned out, I think that was to my detriment because, uh, you know, it, it, just, it just kind of, it didn't keep my attention. <laughs> let's, let's put it that way. You know, my mind started to wander. And, uh, you know, I kind of thought, well, you know, it's a bit of a cliche, but I didn't want to be a one-trick pony. Mm. You know, I didn't just want to go through my whole life just playing golf. Mm. And even, you know, no matter, and no matter how well I did, uh, you know, I, I just thought, that, you know, there are other things in life that I'd like to experience. And I looked at other people, you know, that, that did other things, and I thought, you know, it'd be cool to try and do that and, and try and get involved in other things. Sure. And... Um, so, you know, I played, I played on the tour for 10 years. I played at a wonderful time. Um, I was very, very fortunate about the, my timing of playing golf because, you know, I played at the same time as, as a lot of wonderful people and a lot of great characters. You know, the wonderful people, Hugh Bayaki, you know, is just one of the nicest men you'll ever meet. John Bland, you know, is both a, both a very, very nice man and, and a character. Mm. You know, uh, Hugh, Simon Hobday. I mean, the stories about Simon are legend. Peter Matkovich, Moose Gammon, um, uh, Tilly Britz, obviously Gary Player and Harold Henning and Alan Henning. 
they're all the Henny brothers. Um, so, you know, they were wonderful players, but also great characters. And, and I don't think in the history of golf, more fun has been had in the game of golf than through the 60s, 70s and into the 80s, maybe the early 80s. And, you know, then the game really became big money after that. Mm. And, you know, big money, unfortunately, the, one, of, one of the things that, that you lose is you lose, even though the guys are, the, are characters, they are characters today. Sure. Okay, but they don't, they're not able to show it off the way we did. And then you have social media. And social media is also, you know, it's really hurt that aspect of the game. If we'd had social media in our time, I promise you our careers would have been six months long. <laughs> we're not we're not gonna go, really we're not gonna go to the reasons as to why, but I, I certainly <laughs> see where you're going. <laughs> but but I, I think Delia, you you're so right in the sense that um I suppose at that stage you got the benefit of those those characters at, at their full potential, and I suppose guys were able to live a bit more. I think I think to the cricketing guys, and I think there's a similar kind of thing there with uh, with Alan Lamb and those kind of boys who also, you know, uh, both of them and those guys also had a great time. Um, but but you know, do you think that's to the detriment of the of the sport somewhat in in terms of those characters and those stories being told better back then than they are now? I suppose. You know, the stories are wonderful. And, uh, you know, I think we must try and do everything we can to keep those stories, you know, um, being told. Mm. And, you know, I mean, Simon Hobday always used to say about me, hey, hey, it's when I die, you won't have a story to tell. You won't be able to talk anymore, you know, because all my stories were about him. And, <laughs> and, yeah, Dennis Hutchinson says the same thing. Now, what they don't understand is that, you know, for 30 years, I've made a living talking about those two guys. Now I've become them. I'm just like them now. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think the stories, I think, it's, I think it's very important for us to keep those stories because, you know, I love nothing more than to read about players like Bobby Jones and Walter Hagen and uh, Harry Varden and all those old players and how they played and what the tour was like in those days. And I think people in 20, 30, 40 years' time would love to read about what the tour was like in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And, you know, whilst they're not um, as many, for want of a better way of putting it, crazy characters out there now, and they can't act out some of the stuff that, that maybe they would like to act out, you know, the John Davies of the world have even toned down. Mm. But the golf now is so, is so much better. I mean, the guys are simply, uh, you know, I, I watch them play and I, I kind of just shake my head. I just can't believe how good... And how well they play the game. Yeah. Um, so you know the game has changed from that. The the entertainment aspect has changed from kind of a, a, a more round, more all round entertainment to strictly golf. You know, but the golf keeps people riveted to the TV sets. They can't wait to see the the way Jordan Spieth putts or the way that Bryson DeChambeau drives the ball or the wonderful iron shots that some of the players play. Uh, you know, so. I think I think it's just changed. I think it's just different. I don't think it's I don't think it's necessarily better or worse. Yeah, to that point, Dale. I mean, you you were fortunate enough to play in a, in a Masters and, and experience Augusta and, and that kind of thing. I mean, do do you think, for example, that kind of experience as a player has changed a lot? Um, and, and and if you take, I guess, the professional game outside of the characters, do you think the the whole thing that 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 is the tour has changed dramatically since your playing days? You know, we were much closer to everybody when we played it. We were much closer to the galleries. We were much closer to the media. 
we were much closer to um, the organizers and the administrators of, of tournaments and tours, etc. You know, now, now you know, the players are, are just kept well away from everything. You know, the, you, I mean, you just don't see a player. I mean, I go to a tournament now and I come home and the guy said, oh, did you get a chance to see or talk to so-and-so? And so? I said, I never even saw him other than on the golf course. You know, I never got to see the guy. You know, they play golf, they practice, they go back to their hotels or houses that they've rented. And, you know, as the tournament finishes, they get into their jet and off they go. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's a very, very different different uh, style. You know, we used to share rooms with each other. We used to rent cars together. At night, there'd be 10 of us, South Africans, Australians, New Zealanders, going out for dinner together. Yeah. You know, um, the tour was completely different to what it is now. And, and I say again, you know, I... I Certainly, I, I wouldn't swap my 10 years of playing on the tour for 10 years now, even with the money that they earn. You know, the money's unbelievable, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't give up my 10 years of memories of, of playing for, for what they do today, um, quite simply because they are unbelievable memories. Yeah. It sounds like it's truly become an individual sport since, since those days. I was actually listening to a podcast about Marco Mira's win in uh, in 98 at the masters and uh, it even to, to in terms of his recollections it even sounds different back then to i guess that sort of insular way of things these days as you as you're leading to now you know it, i think even since 98 it's it's changed a lot absolutely there's you know it's, it's changing all the time and i mean it's going to keep changing but just to give you a, two, two quick stories to give you an idea of how it's changed you, you talk about uh, mark amira ray floyd was a wonderful player in my time and I mean, and he played wonderful golf on the Champions Tour. He won, he won at Augusta. In fact, he won three different majors. He terrific player, yeah. very focused player. Ray Floyd is playing at the Open Championship, Royal Birkdale, and down the road from Royal Birkdale, there's a casino, and he's in the casino at midnight. And um, he's sitting there. He says, "I've just got to go to the loo." He says to Teddy Brits, "He says, just look after my trips." When he came back, Teddy Brits had blown all his money. You know, that's a. Could you imagine that happening today? Could you imagine, firstly, during a major championship, a pro golf in a casino down the road from the golf course? Yeah. You know, another, another yeah. story is uh, there was a guy, uh, Mangrum, who used to play on the tour in Bobby Locke's day, I'm talking about the 30s and 40s. He, uh, his wife phoned his room and a woman answered the phone. And his wife just put the phone down and she got into a car and she drove seven or eight hours and got to the hotel, walked straight up to the room, opened the door, and, and there he is, and there's this woman in the room, and she's got a gun. And he says to her, he says, come on. He says, you can't shoot me. He says, I'm doing too well in this tournament. Well, he carried on playing, so clearly she didn't shoot him. <laughs> I, I, once, I don't know if you can verify this or not, but I once heard a story that Ray Floyd sent to, said to Steve Elkington, um, you know, he, they could actually decide when they wanted to play or who they wanted to play with in the opening rounds of the Masters. S Steve Elkington didn't believe this, but apparently there were a few guys who, allowed, who were given the right to choose who they wanted to play with. And I heard this on another podcast. I can't believe that's actually true, but Steve Elkington said this none, nonetheless. So I don't know. I don't know if you can co uh, corroborate that or not, but uh, interesting, you know, different times. I, but... I've never heard that before, no. I haven't heard that. Funny enough, it wouldn't surprise me that, you know, up until the 70s that that did happen. It yeah. wouldn't actually surprise me because I know the draw was fixed. You know, the the uh, amateur champion played with a past winner and stuff like that. The, the draw was to a certain extent fixed. 
So it wouldn't actually surprise me that that did happen. And Dell, I mean, as you alluded to earlier, you, you've obviously been around and played with some of the most phenomenal uh, personalities, players. I mean, if you, if you take it all in and, and, and give it some thought as to all the guys you've been around, was there ever any individual that, you know, upon seeing their first swing on the range or just engaging with them as a person, that it was just that sort of X factor kind of individual, that, that game changer in the sport? Is there anyone that for you kind of stood out? I think in my time, there were, there were three players that stood out. The first was 1974, um, in December 1974, um, Bobby Cole and I won the World Cup of Golf and I flew back to Cape Town. My grandfather wasn't very well. My grandfather lived in Cape Town. Um, and in fact, he had a farm in Stellenbosch and if he hadn't sold that farm, I wouldn't be working today. <laughs> <laughs> we flew back to play in the Western Province Open and I played the final round with, with a young Seve Ballesteros. Now, I was, only, I was only 22 years old, okay, so I was pretty young. But Sebi, I don't know if he was 17 or maybe he just turned 18. And his brother Manuel was with him, and Manuel could speak English, Sebi couldn't. And after the round, Manuel came to me and he said, uh, my brother, he good, eh? And I said, yes, he is. He said, he's got to be a champion. I said, absolutely, he's going to be a champion. You knew Sebi from that age. Sebi was different. He was special. Nick Faldo, I got the same feeling about when I first saw Nick Faldo play, I got exactly the same feeling from Nick Faldo. And the third one was Greg Norman. In 1977, I was playing mainly in America, but I played a couple of tournaments in Europe. Mm. And uh, Greg Norman came to Europe for the first time. And I uh, saw him play. And I just thought to myself, this guy is different. There's just something, there was something about those three players. And it's funny because, you know, you had Ian Wisdom, you had... Um, Bernard Langer and you had Sandy Lyle, who also won majors at the same time, were also three fantastic players. But they just didn't quite have that same spark mm. that uh, Greg Norman, Nick Faldo and Seve Ballesteros. And Seve, I must say, were streets ahead of them all. I mean, the charisma that Seve Ballesteros had. And, you know, you just, you saw him and you just wanted to watch him. You wanted to watch him walk to the first team, never mind hit a shot. You just want to do what you walk to the post. He was amazing. I've got on the list to chat to you about the Ryder Cup at some point, but I can only imagine, I mean, his, his influence on, on the team and, and that dynamic must have been something special. No, it absolutely was. But, you know, I think with the Ryder Cup, the Ryder Cup, they, they, you know, there are a couple of things that I think people have forgotten. Seve, they haven't forgotten, but I think they've forgotten Jack Nicklaus's influence because mm. Jack Nicklaus was the guy who brought Europe into it, mm. brought the continent into it. So he, he saw Seve Ballesteros and Bernard Langer and those guys coming into the team and making a difference. Yeah. And he knew the Ryder Cup needed that. So he was the guy that went to, um, uh, who was it that ran the European Tour at that time? I can't think of the guy's name now. Uh, but he went to the boss of the European Tour and he said, listen, you've got to bring the Continentals into the team. And they did that and, the, and that made a huge difference. Then the next great thing that happened to the to the Ryder Cup team was Tony Jacklin. Mm. They made Tony Jacklin the captain of the first, I think, three um, after the Europeans came in. And um, Tony Jacklin had played a lot in America. And Tony Jacklin knew that that for the for the Europeans to really do well in the Ryder Cup, they had to feel, you know, that they were not inferior to the Americans. Mm. Okay. And he he succeeded in doing that. And that made the huge difference. And then, and then Semi came along. And, you know, 
the the Sevi Sevi didn't like the Americans, and the Americans didn't like Sevi. It was under, it was easy to understand why the Americans didn't like Sevi because he kept beating them. Yeah, but I don't know why Sevi didn't like Americans. But he didn't. He, there was some. There was always a, a, a niggle with, with any American players, and uh, you know, Sevi was just wonderful for the Ryder Cup. And and Sevi had the ability to wind everybody else up, to get everybody else, you know, feeling the same way he did. Yeah. And that was the, what what changed the whole Ryder Cup to what it is today. I must uh, yeah, say that I've listened to a few of uh, Paul Azinger's uh, sort of recollections of the Ryder Cup, and I, 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 he echoes that sentiment so well and how well. Sevi was able to get under the skin of the Americans, and I think, you know, that was the that was the catalyst. I think for the the, the relative dislike, as you as you put it. But but Dale, it's also interesting. I mean, we sit on the eve, obviously, of uh, of the Masters, and also the fact that that old Jordan uh, Spieth has just made a fantastic comeback at the Valero. Um, I'm also fascinated to know your opinion on, you know, you get these guys who go into the wilderness and then they're able to sort of come out of it, but you also get those, those few that go into the wilderness and, and, and actually never come, come back out of it. What do you think is the, is there a, a specific thing that you can attest to or mention that kind of is the difference between those guys who make it back and those who don't, you know, what is the difference there? No, I think there, there, there are two things. There's obviously there's the, the technical issue and then there's a mental issue. Mm. So the technical issue, I think if you've got something in your game that is technically inferior, you know, you might have a wonderful mind and you might have a lot of other aspects to your game that are fantastic. But if you have an aspect of your game that is, a, that is an issue, okay, it's going to get you. Mm. Somewhere along the line, it's going to get you, whether it's chipping or putting or driving, whatever it might be. So somewhere along the line, it's going to get you, and I think that's what we saw with that's what we saw with um, Jordan Spieth. Jordan Spieth is a bad driver of the ball, and he's a bad driver of the ball because he grips the club badly. Mm. He doesn't hold the club correctly, and and you'll never be consistent if you don't hold the club correctly. So any contact you have with the club, and you know it's it's like in business, you know if you don't get those basics early on correct, okay, you're never going to be successful, and and uh, you know he has got an issue with that. However, he's got such a good mind. He mentally, he's so strong that he's, he is able to get away with it. And then he's the most wonderful long putter you've ever seen. Yeah. I mean, he might be one of the best long putters in the history of the game. So, you know, he, he gets away with a lot because of those things. But mentally, I, you know, the difficult thing about golf is that you have so much time between shots to think. You don't have that in other sports. You know, other sports is much more of a reaction. Golf, you're thinking all the time, you're thinking it's so easy for negative stuff to get into your brain. And, you know, it, it doesn't take long for the negative stuff to get in, but boy, does it take long for it to get out. <laughs> I think you're speaking on you behalf know, of pretty much every amateur in the world. As you, as absolutely. You, you know, you stand up, you know, you can, every golfer can relate to this. You stand up on a hole. Where do you play it? Do you play at Stellenbosch? Yeah, around the around the Cape mostly. So we've got a bit of wind to contend with, and and some great courses, as you know. Um, but yeah, mainly sort of dissolves Stellenbosch, uh, Stienberg, Pool Valley. So yeah, there's a, there's a quite a few that uh, we're fortunate enough to play here. So you stand you stand on a hole, and there's there's water on the side of the fairway, and you walk under the tin. You say, oh, I did in the water there last week. You know, I mustn't hit it in the water again. You know, I, you know, I hooked my ball there. So everything is negative. You just, you're almost talking yourself into hitting that water again. Yeah. And and the only way to combat it is that you you do exactly the opposite. You hit it 100 yards to the other side. 
So that, you know, those are the, your two options. But, you know, how difficult it is to stand on that tee and put those negative thoughts out of your mind and turn them into positives and say, I'm not looking at that wood. I'm not seeing that wood. I'm going to rip this right down the center of the fairway with a little bit of a fade or whatever. I'm going to aim it at that bunker and I'm going to hit it in that bunker. You know, I'm going to hit it at that tree. You know, and get positive thoughts going. And, you know, it's very easy to sit there and talk about it. But when you're on the golf course, it's not so easy. You know, Ian Baker Finch had got into his brain that he just could not drive the ball on the golf course. You know, he got onto the golf course, he just didn't know where the ball was going to go. And he eventually got to the point where he was terrified to stand over the golf course because he, he didn't know where it was going to go, left, right, high, low, what it was going to do. And, and that was just, it was a mental thing. I mean, I'm sure he'll, he'll, he would admit exactly the same thing to me. You know, and then there's um, David Duval, a similar story. And there have been a lot of wonderful players, a lot of guys who could really, really play. They could hit the ball, they could swing, but they never had it mentally. You know, so they're the two things. And, and you know, I think for um, I think uh, Jordan Spieth is working hard, I think, to try and to try and improve his driving. And, he, you know, he really he has got a lot of work to do there. But, um, you know, once he does that, you know, he's going to be a consistently good player for a very long time. But I'm also fascinated to um, to pick your brain on on that sort of move into the the commentary box, as it were. I mean, most of us sort of hear your voice uh, and don't often see the sort of behind the scenes um, happenings in in the commentary box. I'm fascinated to know your to go back to your first day in the commentary box, how you got into it, what what it was like in the beginning, and kind of you know where you've gotten to today. Well, the, you know, the, my first experience in the commentary box was at Sun City uh, at the Nedbank Golf Challenge. And I'm not sure exactly what year it was. It was the early 90s, I think. And uh, Trevor Quirk said to me, why don't you come up to come up into the commentary box and see how we do things? So I said, oh, I'd really love to do that. And in those days, they had a commentary box way up in the air alongside the 18th fairway. And um, you had to climb all these stairs to get up to the top there. And anyway, I, I got up to the top there and I'm sitting down and uh, well, they they give me they push up a seat, and uh, Trevor Quirks takes a pair of headphones and he puts them over my ears, and I'm listening to all the the shouting going on behind the scenes. Uh, in those days, there was a producer by the name of Scotty Seawood, wonderful, wonderful producer, you know, without question the best producer South Africa's ever had, mm. absolutely a champion. He could have made it anywhere in the world. Anyway, he's producing and he's shouting and camera this way. What are you doing? And Come on, if we go to the fifth hole, Trevor, do this, and you know, whatever. And this is what's going on in your ears all the time that you have to get used to. And um, Trevor, Trevor picked up a microphone and he handed it to me. And he said, uh, we've got Dale Hayes here. Dale, tell us about uh, the, the next shot that so-and-so is going to play. And that was it. <laughs> That's, yeah, I spent half an hour or an hour. I'm not sure how long I spent an hour in there. And that was how I started. And, and then they just invited me to come and commentate. And, uh, you know, I have to, I have to really thank um, both Trevor Quirk and Martin Locke, who I'm sure you see in your area. But both Trevor Quirk and Martin Locke were really, really good to me and really gave me a lot of advice and helped me and stuff like that. And, and um, you know, I have to really thank them for, for what they did. You know, you know, it's, a lot of other industries, people would come along and there'd be a lot of jealousy and they, they, they would be, you know, they wouldn't be so open to, to try and help you. But both of them were, couldn't have been nicer to me. 
Dale, you, you're incredibly well read on on the sport and on you know all about the history of the, of of golf. I mean, I, I would assume that that would have helped a lot in terms of being able to tell the the stories that needed to be told when it comes to commentary. I mean, I think it was Richie Benno who who once said, you know, the cricket commentator once told uh, an up and coming commentator, if if the viewer can see it on the screen, don't say it. You know, in other words. You know, give give some uh, context to what's happening rather than just saying what's what's actually happening on the screen. And I think you've always been brilliant at at that. You know, in terms of giving that little bit of extra nugget or whatever it is that tells the story. Is that is that is that the case? Do you think? You know, I've tried I've tried to to be a little bit different. I've tried to to add a little bit of sort of history and a little bit of fun into it, and uh, you know, some lighthearted stuff. Um, I. I also try to copy a little bit to the man that, that for me is the best commentator that's ever been is Peter Alice. And, you know, Peter Alice would always come along with a little gem like, uh, you know, Mrs. Mrs. Van der Merwe, who plays golf at uh, Barclay East, had a, had a 75 gross the other day of a 22 handicap. You know, and he'd come up with something like that. And it, but it, you know, and people would go, wow, you know, hell, and they'd be phoning her for the next six months. You know, you were on television, and I think, I think that's lovely. I really do. I enjoy listening to that. So I would imagine that other people would enjoy it as well. Um, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a technical. Um, I don't get very involved in the technical side of the game. You know, I'm not involved in the technical side of the golf street or anything like that. I think I do know the way you should play the game. I know the shots <laughs> that you should be playing. But, you know, I don't get involved in the swing or any of that sort of stuff. You know, I have no interest in that. I've never been interested in it. I have no interest in that. But, um, you know, I like to make it a little bit lighthearted. That's why I love commentating with Tony Johnson. I love obviously commentating with Hutchie, you know, because we have a bit of fun. And we take the mickey and, and, you know, we give each other a little bit of stick. And I think the people love that. You know, I think the people go to the golf course the next day and they say, "Hell, oh, did you hear what Tony Johnson said to Hayes yesterday? You know, and, and that's that's what it's about. I, I'm, I think that's what it's about. Uh, Dale, I can't remember if you told the story where I heard it, what sort of golf day it was, but there was a, a story about Tony Johnson's grass that I think, you know, he's quite avid about keeping a, a nice lawn in front of his house. And, and one of the guys that's... played a, <laughs> I don't know if you can recall the story. It was John Black. What happened? What happened there? Uh, John uh, Tony Johnson had, a, had his lawn, and he's he really is a, a fanatic gardener. So his garden is pristine, but he did something, and he lost. He lost the grass, and he had a bet with um, Gavin Levinson, I think it was, and he said by by the tournament next year at Wentworth, this grass will be perfect. And they had a bit of a bet, and everything like that. Anyway, he invited all the guys around for a ride. And uh, the grass was perfect. And the guys thought we were playing a trick. And they went and got a whole lot of Jasper Parnovic's divots. Now, Jasper Parnovic, when he takes a divot, it looks like a foot-long hot dog. Okay, And they grabbed a whole lot of these Jasper Parnovic divots and went, and one of them lay behind the hedge. And John Bland took a club and pretended he was taking these divots. And as he swung, the other guy would throw this divot in the air. Okay, and somebody ran and told John Bland. Well, he I told uh, Tony Johnson. Well, he ran and got his pellet gun, and he stood at the window upstairs, screaming at John Bland, saying, "I'm going to shoot you if you don't stop. I'm going to shoot you if you don't stop." And they throwing divots in the air and everything like that. 
Oh. Now they caught it beautifully. Oh. I've also, I was also interested to know, you know, you've, you've in the commentary game, there's, there's quite a difference between the European style, I guess, on the European tour and, and what you see on the PGA tour. So my question is kind of twofold in that, how do you see the difference between those sort of commentary approaches? And secondly, I mean, if you take all the commentators that you've either listened to or been in the box with, who for you kind of in the contemporary sense, the current guys, is, is really sort of setting the, the benchmark for, I think, the way that commentary is going to happen in the future? I do prefer the, the European style of commentary. I like the, the sort of quietness and the relaxed uh, way that it's done in Europe or the more relaxed way it's done in Europe. I think the American, you know, they, they try to often trying to fake excitement and um, trying to make it, you know, you know, just, you know, all around excitement, but every moment of commentary and golf is not like that. Mm. You know, golf really doesn't, doesn't need that. I don't believe, you know, there are a lot of times when golf isn't going to be exciting. Golf is going to be a little bit boring. But then you rely, you know, you rely on the prettiness of, of what you're looking at a lot of the times. You know, golf is such a pretty game to watch. Mm. You know, when I say pretty, I'm talking about literally the pictures. Yeah. The pictures at Leopard Creek, you know, I mean, are unbelievable. I mean, we get comments from all over the world about how beautiful it is and everything like that. You know, pictures at Pebble Beach are the same. The pictures at, at Royal Melbourne. You know, so, you know, I think the pictures often just can tell a story. And I don't think you need to hype it up as much as sometimes the Americans do. However, in saying that, I think I think that Nick Faldo, when he tries, is phenomenal. At the Augusta, he tries. Certain tournaments, he has certain tournaments that he really enjoys, I think. And when he does enjoy it, he is fantastic. He gives you, he gives you uh, information that I promise you, I sit there and I go, well, you know, at Augusta, I say, well, you know, I've never, I played, it, I played in the Masters three times. And, and I go, I cannot believe that. I never, ever noticed that before. Well, I, I would never believe that. You know, he really is. He's unbelievable. I think Trevor Immerman is doing a terrific job. Mm. I really think Trevor's good. I really do. I think he's, 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 got, uh, he's got a lovely voice. He's got a nice way of putting things over. I think Trevor's very good. You know, the Americans don't get the opportunity of, of humour because it's so fast-paced. So they don't get the same opportunity that they do in Europe um, of, of coming up with anything that's kind of anything that's funny or any funny stories or anything like that. So it's unfair to say, to compare them, I think, from that point of view. I, in, in Europe, I think Tony, Tony Johnson, you know, when it comes to animals and bird life, I mean, he's, wow, you know, he really is amazing to listen to. You know, he just knows so much about those things, you know, that, that I think it's just fun. I mean, I know I'm sitting next to him and I'm having fun. I really am. You know, unfortunately, uh, uh, Julian Tut, uh, uh, not sorry, well, Julian Tut's no longer there, nor is Doogie Donnelly. Mm. You know, Doogie Donnelly, I thought, was terrific. He was a wonderful presenter. He had a lovely Scottish accent. You know, uh, he knows the, the game of golf inside out, back to front, upside down. He's terrific. But so the guy they're using a lot now is a guy called Dom Hollier, who's also, he's also very good. Um, I would say those are the people that I pick out at the moment. I think that, that, are, that are really outstanding. Peter Ellis, as I said earlier, Peter Ellis was my man. And if you haven't watched Peter Ellis accepting his Hall of Fame award, you haven't lived. Mm. So have you never seen it? 
I've seen it. I, it unbel- I mean, I, I get goosebumps thinking about it. Uh, he's, Isn't it unbelievable? Yeah. No, I think I think watching the you know watching those opens, he was so synonymously linked with um, with the open coverage and just his manner of speech and you know those wonderful anecdotes he, he would use and everything. It's just I had lunch with him at Augusta about six years ago, six or seven years ago, and um, I said to him, he, he then was um, I think he was about eighty three or eighty four years old, and I said to him, Peter, I said, uh, when are you going to retire? He said, Dale, retire. I can't retire. Even I can't wait to hear what I'm going to say next. <laughs> I, I wanted to okay, quickly get back to the Ned Bank, Dale, because you've been such a part of that, that tournament's evolution over the, over the years. What's your feeling on its, on its place now, where it is and what it's going to be part of? And, and what are some of the, the best sort of memories for you um, sort of on the commentary side at that tournament? You know, I think that the, the, the other tours, being the PGA Tour and the European Tour, kind of um, forced us into a corner. And I'm using us in the, in, in the big picture. Obviously, I've got nothing to do with it personally, but they were going to push, push the net bank out in terms of dates. And it already started with them putting Tigers tournament at the same time as the net bank golf challenge. That was the start of it. And, you know, as soon as the European Tour got a big event, the European Tour would have done exactly the same. And it would have been more and more difficult for us to get players to come out to South Africa um, and play in, in the Netbank Golf Challenge. And, and we've also got to remember, you know, that nowadays it's not just about the money. You can't give them enough money. Mm. You know, Tiger Woods has turned down $4 million to play in one tournament. You know, it's not about the money. So, um, you know, you've, you've got to rely on other things to get them out here. You've got to rely on them wanting to come to South Africa, perhaps wanting to bring their family and, and going on a safari or whatever it might be. So uh, we were going to find it more and more difficult to get players out here. And I think then at that time, the Sunshine Tour, which, um, you know, is chaired by uh, Johan Rupert and obviously um, uh, at that time, the commissioner was Selwyn Nathan. They they looked at the they looked at it and they said, well, you know, basically there are two options: a world championship event or something on the on the European tour towards the end. You know that that's going to give it a bit more credibility. And they got that opportunity of having the second last tournament on the European tour. And I think they jumped at it. Um, I think we've been we've been a little unlucky. You know, with a few with a few different things, we've been a bit unlucky with how the the race to Dubai has turned out a couple of times recently. Where you know the most exciting players haven't been featuring, and they if they have been featuring, they've been so far ahead they didn't need to come to the Net Bank Golf Challenge to still win. And that was the case of John Rahm a couple of years ago. So you know, I think they've been a, uh, we've had a little bit of bad luck. Um, but we've also had, you know, we, when we had um, Rory out here, you know, that made the event. And, you know, that's what we've, we've they've got to continue to try and do that, to try and get at least one of those major, major stars to come out to the Netbank Golf Challenge from the European Tour. Um, and, and I know they are. I mean, they work very, very hard to try and do that. But unfortunately in golf, you know, the players can choose wherever they want to play, whenever they want to play. And as I say, you know, money isn't a factor anymore for these guys. They make so much money, you know, that it's not really that. If you go to Rory and decide to give you two or three 
million dollars. He would say, you know, I'm spending the week with my wife. I don't want to go to South Africa. But Dale, I've got to go back to uh, a, a certain instance in the, at the Ned Bank, and I was lucky enough to be uh, on the first tee when it happened. I don't want to, I, I could never tell it as well as you do, but um, uh, I'll, set the, I'll set the scene for it. There was a, there was a certain player, golfer, about to tee off, uh, and as that happened, uh, one, of the, one of the babies in the, uh, in the crowd started to, to scream a little bit at an, at an inopportune time. What, uh, what happened next? <laughs> you know, unfortunately, I had the microphone, <laughs> and I could see that the you know I could see that the player had been put off, so he was going to walk away from the shot and start his whole process again. So I had a bit of time, and as the baby cried, I said, "Gary, quiet, please," because Gary Player was sitting right there, and uh, thank goodness nobody laughed harder than Gary. <laughs> Gary thought it was <laughs> Gary thought it was funny, so so I got away with it. But, you know, Gary, uh, on the first tee, firstly, I'll, let me say that Gary loves to laugh. And, you know, Gary's, a, Gary's, you know, probably a lot of people wouldn't realize that. But Gary has a wonderful sense of humor, a fantastic sense of humor. And he loves to laugh. In fact, Gary's father's name was Laughing Harry because he was exactly like Gary. He just laughed all the time. And Gary loves to laugh. I mean, seriously, he's on the golf course and everything like that. You get Gary socially and he's, you know, he's laughing all the time. So, you know, we, have, we, we do have quite a lot of fun on the first tee where Gary's around. And we have had a, you know, Gary, Gary grabbed the microphone from me last uh, two years ago. And he said, he said, look at that haze. And he pointed to my stomach. He said, look at that haze. He hasn't seen his talkers for five years. <laughs> so, so it goes both ways. <laughs> when I got the microphone back, I said, oh, Gary, I said, you know, they've told me every play area should have a reef. <laughs> so you know we, we've had a lot of fun we've had a lot of fun over the years we had a, we had a nice one as well with um, oh damn what's a tall guy a really tall player from England anyway he's like six foot seven and he walked off the first tee and as he walked off the first tee I said I said you know he met this girl last night and she asked she said is everything in your body in perfect proportion he said, hell no, if it was, I'd be 10 foot 8. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I think in South Africa, we also, we, we're a little bit British in so much as we like to knock our stars. We, you know, we like, you know, yes, he's done very well, but did you know? <laughs> you know, I think we, we, we're a bit like that. You know, we, we Americans build up their stars. No matter what happens, they build him up. I mean, you look at Tiger and what, what Tiger's got away with. You know, you look at what John Daly's got away with. You know, in America, I mean, they really do. You know, they forgive and they forget and they just keep building up their stars. In South Africa, you know, we, we, we tend not to. We tend to, you know, to try and break them down. Mm. And whilst I think that's a little bit with Gary, I think the other thing with Gary is that we never saw Gary win tournaments on television. So I don't think South Africans actually know how good he is. You know, it's very easy to say Gary won nine majors. It, it's, uh, you know, nine's a number, you know. Now, actually, now think about it. Jack Nicklaus, Tiger Woods, and Walter Hagen are the only three players in the history of the game that have won more majors than Gary Player. Now, so, you know, when people say when people say to me, you know, yeah, but, you know, Ernie's the best golfer South Africa's ever had. You know, Ernie's not even close. Mm. Not even close to Gary. He hasn't won, you know, he's won less than half of what Gary's won. 
Yeah, I think that's a bit of rec- I think that's a bit of recency bias, if anything. But I mean, as you said, you know, the fact that we've never really, we never really got to see Gary uh, in his prime. I mean, imagine watching him in his prime in HD. You know, <laughs> it would have been unbelievable, pretty in- incredible. But but Dale, yeah. I think you know, g- getting back to the people side of the game and what you've learned as an individual over over your career, you know, if if you were I suppose having a chat to a couple of young up-and-coming guys in the golf industry, or you know, wanting to make it in in, in the business space. What what are some of the, the lessons that you've learned about people that that sort of endear that, that I guess create the the right impact for for other people? What are the, some of the things that that you've learned from other people that that you try and aspire to yourself, and that you would then pass on to to others? I think firstly, there's no substitute for hard work. Everybody that's made it in anything has worked hard at some stage, unless you've won the lottery. I think the next thing would be, don't be scared to make mistakes. If you wanna wanna be successful, and I think that that's becoming more and more um, evident in today's world where things are changing so much, don't be scared to make mistakes. You know, if you wanna do something, you've gotta try a lot of different things, you know, especially today. You have to try things, and, and unless you try them, you, you're never going to know whether they're going to work, and there are going to be things that don't work. Again, you look at a lot of the successful people. They've had failures, and they learn from their failures. We were, I was very lucky to meet a guy in Britain by the name of Stephen Bowler. Stephen Bowler happened to be Nick Price's first sponsor. Stephen Bowler opened a kitchen business that went bankrupt after about six months. A year later, he opened up exactly the same business, and all his friends said, are you crazy? You know, you tried this before, it didn't work. Do something different. He said, I know exactly what I did wrong. He said, I've got, I've got the formula now. I've got the perfect formula. And he made gazillions. It was unbelievably successful. He then sold it to the people he sold it to, ruined the business. He bought it back for nothing and, and built it up again. He did it twice. And, you know, that, that, that really made a mark for me. Don't be, you know, don't be scared. Learn from, learn from your mistakes. You know, in, in life and in golf, you learn nothing from winning. After you've won, you celebrate. You learn from losing. That's where you learn. You know, and that's what you've got to go and do. You know, you know. For example, uh, when and now I'm kind of, <laughs> uh, you know, in the golf business, we are, you know, we are in a golf course. So, you know, now we may let's say we're doing a, a, a marketing campaign for memberships. Why, you know, when we come up with an idea, why didn't it work? What was wrong with it? Try and work out why it didn't work. And maybe it just needs a little bit of refining for it to work. You you wouldn't have tried it if you didn't think it was a good idea. So probably it had a lot of merit to it, but there might have been just one little thing that wasn't quite right that you you need to refine to make it work. So learn from your mistakes. I think that, that that really, I think, is crucial. And learn from people. Learn from other people. You know, most things have been done before. Okay, today, I should take that back because today a lot of the big successes are things that haven't been done before. But, you know, in in normal life, most things have been done before. So learn from people. You know, listen to people and learn from them. You know, I'm very, very fortunate that I spend um, an hour every few months um, at a meeting with with Johan Rupert at uh, Golf RSA. And... You know, I love, I love it when he starts talking, you know, and he'll, he'll come up with gems and, you know, you think to yourself, wow, you know, that's, that's brilliant. You know, you know, that's something that, that maybe, you know, you can, you can, 
Obviously, he's in a completely different world to me and in a completely different business. But that's something that you can use in a way. You don't, you have to change it maybe, but it's, it's, the concept is, is something or the idea is something that could be used in, in other places. And so I think you need to learn from people all the time. I think, Dale, that's such an interesting point because, you know, you look at these guys who have been successful golf business, you know, whatever the field might be, and <clears throat> the lack of um, ego at play, you know, in terms of how they go about their business, the curiousness with which they uh, ask people questions, as you've alluded to, is is such a common thread that that we find with the guys that are are setting the benchmark. So it's it's fascinating you say that because I think it's so true, especially in today's world where they just don't let their egos get in the way. And, and in the past, perhaps that was, especially the, the, the males, you know, ego was a big thing. Um, and it seemed yeah. to be a stumbling block more than anything else. You know, I go, I'm, I go to the, that golf show in America every year. Mm. And every year I go there, uh, we try and go and visit a few golf courses that we haven't been to before to see, you know, what they're doing and if they're doing anything different or anything special or anything we could learn from. And... Um, and often, you know, my wife goes with me and she goes to a lot of the, the, um, the talks that they have from, from various people. One of one's been in South Africa, Mike Leomais, who you met. Mm. When we do that, you know, we, we come back to South Africa with a whole bunch of ideas. You know, my family, Swatkop is a family business. My family dread it because every time I walk in, I say, right, let's try this, let's try that, let's try this. And we try all these different things. And yeah, some of them work and some of them don't. You know, and, and I, you know, I just, I just think, I think that's, that's so important, you know, to, to have that um, imagination, mm. to have that, uh, to, to get rid of that fear of failing. Yeah. Because, you know, and I think, I think maybe, maybe I, I'm not scared of failing because I did it so often on the golf course. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no, but you do, you know, like here's a, here's a lovely step that you'll enjoy. Mm. At the height of Jack Nicklaus's career, he lost 92% of the tournaments he played in. The height of John McEnroe's career, he won 92% of the matches he played. That shows you the difference. Golf, we learn to lose. So you learn, you learn. Yeah. Sometimes if you do well, you come second. But a lot, often you come a lot further down than second. But you know, Dale, I've never obviously met Jack, but I can't help but think in every way that you see him, uh, how he presents himself, is that he has never allowed his ego or his sense of self to over, overrun, you know, his, his trajectory and where he was going. You know, I've, I've had the pleasure of speaking to Robbie Marshall quite recently, who knows him well. And the way that Robbie speaks about uh, Jack, it just, it's another example of someone who he was always just, yeah. I mean, to lose, as you said, to lose ninety-two percent of the time, you've got to be pretty open-minded or pretty, you know, humble to to just not let that affect you. You know, if you walk into Jack Nicklaus's house, which happens to be the same house that he bought when he left Columbus, Ohio, uh, in the early sixties, he lives in exactly the same house in Florida that he did, that he bought then. You walk into his house, you do not see a trophy or a memento or anything about golf. His son tells a story that in 40 years ago, pretty much exactly 40 years ago now, his son was playing in a junior tournament in America and he finished his round and handed the scorecard in and he had a really good day. And they said, there's a phone call for you. And he went and took the phone call and it was his dad, Jack Nicholas. And Jack said, how did you play? He said, no, I played really well, dad. I shot at whatever score. And uh, he started to go through the round 
And he went through every single shot and every single hull with his father on the telephone. And his father listened to every shot. And as, they, as he finished up, his father said to him, he said, it was uh, Jack Jr. So he said, Jackie, he said, I'm really proud of you. Well done. He said, you played well. Your family's proud of you. But maybe you want to ask your dad how he did today. And Jack said, oh, yes, that's right. He said, how did you do today? He said, I've just won the US Open. Okay. <laughs> I, the only thing I can, I can add to that, uh, Dale, is the look on, on Jack's face when his grandson holed out at the par three contest oh. was that a couple of years ago now. I mean, he still says to this day that his greatest achievement is his grandson, uh, you know, holding out in the par three contest. I, I wanted to pick your brain uh, going to, to this sort of team dynamic. You know, we, as you're involved with the team at SWATCorp, and, and many of us are always involved with a team dynamic of some kind, I want to draw back to, to the team element of golf in, in, in the Ryder Cup and the differences between a culture that was, is and was the European style and the American style. What do you think? I mean, I'm sure you're interested as much as the rest of us in, in the in the Ryder Cup and how it's evolved. What do you think has been the the difference in if you if we if we're honest with ourselves, a European team who who probably looked less you know prolific on paper, but seems to always come out on top. What 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 can you put that down to? No, I think I think uh, they get on a lot better with each other naturally. Than, than the Americans do. I think they spend a lot more time together, you know, as people, you know, on the European tour than the Americans do. And, and especially the British, and I think, I think they bring it out in the other players. You know, I think they have a bit more of a sense of humour and everything like that, and they, they take things a little bit less seriously, I think, than the Americans. And then, then I think also, I think their captains have been brilliant. You know, I think they've, they've, they've managed to choose... Very, very cleverly, they've chosen their captains from Tony Jacklin onwards. And you know, to be fair, even before Tony Jacklin, but in those days it was just Britain, and you know they were just, you know, they they didn't have as much chance of winning. But I think they've they've always chosen their 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 captains, and I want to say with less political baggage than the Americans. You know, the Americans, it's kind of always been a guy to be captain of the, of, the, of the Ryder Cup. They really would like you to have won a PGA championship because the, the tournament, the Ryder Cup is owned by the PGA in America, mm. not by the tour. It's actually owned by the PGA of America. And in Britain, it's half owned by the PGA and half by the tour. So it's a little bit different. It's a little bit different to, to other tournaments that are owned by the tours. So in America, you know, they, they, they really would like you to have won a PGA championship before they, they would make you a captain. That's not, it's not a, a, a prerequisite, but it does help. Paul McGinley was unbelievable by all accounts. He was evidently, you know, people talk about him as being the best captain in the history of the Ryder Cup. And, and Dale, what's so interesting, I've, I've heard so many uh, of the interviews that he's given post that, uh, you know, success as a captain. And, you know, he marks a lot of it down to the fact that he wasn't one of the best players out there, that he knew, he knew how tough it was as a player and, and could empathize with certain things better than, I guess, a, the likes of a, a Tiger or a Jack could. I don't know what your feelings are on that, but I think there's a lot of merit to that in terms of how you choose your, your leader, your, your, your captain in, in that kind of environment. You know, I, th I, I think so. I think 100%. I think, you know... Um, and, and, I, and I'm going to say that one mistake Europe did make was picking Faldo. Hmm. You know, Nick Faldo was a disaster. Hmm. And, 
You know, Nick Faldo was always going to be a disaster. I mean, they knew people were saying before they even picked him, they said, if they pick Faldo, it's going to be a disaster. You know, Nick Faldo is a, he's an introvert. You know, he, he doesn't kind of acknowledge anything that goes around him or out of his bubble. You know, he's just that kind of guy. And I'm not saying that's bad. You know, it's bad. That's just the way he is. So, you know, Nick Faldo is always going to be a disaster. I mean, he, you know, spent the week with his son on the cart, and, you know, this kind of stuff. You know, it, just everything he did just rubbed everybody up the wrong way. So, you know, that was the one mistake they, they did make where they went and picked the best player rather than picking the best captain. Thomas Bjorn, not, not, you know, Thomas was a great player, but not the best player that's ever played the European Tour. So, you know, they, they've got a history of doing that. I mean, the next captain is, is Podrick Harrington, who has been, you know, one of the best players on the European Tour for many years. You know, I think they got a bit lucky with Darren Clark because he, he was, uh, he's got charisma, he's got flair and everything like that, but I don't think he was, he did the kind of behind-the-scenes work, although he did get it, some guys with him that did a lot of that work. So, you know, that's the other thing. You know, if you're in a certain type of captain that's not maybe great with that, all the admin stuff that you need to do, you need to get guys that are going to help you with that. Mm. And I think that's another thing that the guys recently have done really well. I think, I mean, Lee Westwood's going to be an unbelievable captain. What you say there is so uh, so interesting in that as, as leaders, you know, let's take a general manager of a golf club or, or a, a CEO of a company or whatever the case might be. You know, if you, we tend to know what our strengths and weaknesses, at least to some extent, are. It's, it's, it's often how well we are able to plug those gaps with the people around us and how, how much we actually eliminate our sense of ego, a sense of self to plug those gaps that, that ultimately determines the success. Do you, do you agree with that? Absolutely. You know, I, I, for, for many years, our, my main business was running golf events and golf days. And, you know, I couldn't run the toilet, never mind a golf day or anything like that. So, you know, I had to make sure I was the front person. But, you know, Sharon Brains was the person who ran everything, you know, and, and it's exactly that. You have to have somebody like that. Sharon is still with us running Swatball. You know, so, you know, I'm, I'm again, I'm, I'm the front person and all that. And I, you know, I think I come up with some nice ideas every now and again and, and try and make, make things fun and all that sort of stuff. And my, my son is very much like me. Um, but, you know, we have, we have Sharon, we have uh, my, my wife, Alison. And, uh, you know, it's quite a, quite a unique setup at Swatco because we have, uh, my brother still works there. He's worked there for 51 years. Mm-hmm. My son works there. He runs the catering, and he does that with my ex-wife. And then my current wife also works there. You've got to make sure that your alimony and your salaries are the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> that, that sounds like a whole different theme for a podcast. Huh? <laughs> but it's, a, it's a fascinating story, and I hope you, you do fully document it one day because um, I've, I've read the, the read whole truth. Yeah. The whole truth with the, uh, with, uh, with your, your good friends there. And I, I love the stories that came out of that. But I, I just wanted to, to, before we jump onto some quick fire questions, I, I just wanted to ask you, I mentioned earlier that we, we as the sort of public, we see, you know, from the outside in the commentary box and what happens at the tournaments and things like that. What is the one thing that you think very few people that are never on the inside actually know about what either happens in a commentary box or what happens at a tournament? Something that you can share that, that, that the public would never really know unless they were part of the mold. 
Well, I think what the, you know what people don't know is what goes on in your headset. You know that at all times you've got to be listening to the to the director or producer, and he's telling you where you're going and what's happening and how many shots they played, and you know they're giving you all that kind of information. So you know that's um, a lot of that information is is you know somebody helping us with it. So you know I don't know that at the 14th hole. Uh, so-and-so is playing his second shot. You know, I've got to be told that it's his second shot. He might have hit it out of bounds. It might be his fourth shot. So, <laughs> you know, you know. so we, we, we rely, you know, it's a very, very much a team effort. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a, a, a program is only as good as its, as its producers and directors. Mm-hmm. They make the programmers. Those guys and cameramen, sorry, I must say the cameramen, the sound people, you know, if they make the program. They really do. We add a little bit to it, and um, you know, but you know, and we helped a lot by that. You know, giving us the info, helping us with the information, and making sure that we see the right shots all the time. Making sure that we see, you know, the right things, the, the pretty shots, and the the, the the odd animal or whatever might be going on. You know, that's what makes the program. When you watch at Leopard Creek, and I think I think Leopard Creek is. Is really is a, is a very popular tournament for people to watch on television. When you watch that, I, most people that I speak to afterwards react to shots that aren't necessarily the golf shots. They said, you know, oh, we saw this, and we saw. Is there really an elephant on the golf course? Was there really this happening? You know, was Tony Johnson? You know, did, did Tony Johnson really know all those birds? And does he have a book with him? And does, you know, all that. You know, all those kind of things. And you know, I know Dennis Hutchinson. Um, <laughs> Dennis Hutchinson cannot resist identifying a bird. And he knows about birds what I know about fishing in the Antarctic. He knows nothing. Okay, but he can't resist it. So as long as you keep quiet for long enough, Hutchie's going to come out with a bird name. You know he's going to come up with it eventually, and it'll be wrong. And then somebody will send us email after email, uh, faxes, whatever whatever machine they've got in front of him. Dennis, how can he call that thing a this when you know it's that? <laughs> the one I've, I've always wanted to ask you is the, the famous um, pull that you, you know what I'm talking about on the European tour. Well, there were a lot of, there, afterwards, there were a lot of hand gestures from Hachi <laughs> because he, you know, he was working, he was working with um, a very, very well-known commentator in Britain by the name of Steve Beddow. Yeah. And Steve was, is a household name in, in Britain, uh, you know, in, in terms of golf. Yeah. And uh, Steve has been to South Africa many, 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 many times. And he knew exactly what that word meant. So when Ernie blurted it out and Steve then turned to Hutchie and said, well, maybe you can explain what that word means. He knew exactly what it meant. So he and he knew Hutchie couldn't say anything. <laughs> so there were a lot of hand gestures about it. It certainly is, a, is, is well documented or well known amongst the public. But I, I wanted to, we could jump into some uh, quick questions uh, as, we, as we kind of start to the chat. Um, and I'm, it sounds like your, your, your dog wants to answer them more than you do. So <laughs> let's, let's jump into them quickly. Um, next South African to win a major, in your opinion? I think it might be Louis Oostazen. Not a bad. I think he might win another one before anybody else wins. Second one is you can play one of these for the rest of your life, either Parkland or Lynx. You know, I would, I would probably choose a Parkland only for the reason that the weather would allow me to play more often. 
the most impactful or influential golf course, in your opinion, in the world? St. Andrews. What's bigger, the Open or the Masters? You know, I, I think if you come from South Africa, I would have to take the Open. So the next question is, uh, you can either drive it like Bryson or put it like Faxon. You know, I think, I think I'd probably, and this goes very much against my brain, but I think I'd probably drive it like Bryson. So, so Dale, this, this one, I think I know what your answer is going to be, but as, as goats go, Tiger or Jack? Oh, come on. That's a silly question. Jack. <laughs> Jack Nicholas, without question. The best run tournament you've ever played in or attended? The Masters. No question. It's the most efficiently run. It's the best run. It's the most amazing sporting spectacle you, can, you could ever imagine. And then last, Dale, your all-time football, including yourself, and they can be dead or alive. I would choose uh, Walter Hagen. Then I would love to play it with Bobby Jones. And I think the third one I would choose, in fact, is still alive, is Jackie Burke. Dale, it's, uh, I could ask you about another 300 questions, but I just I kind of wanted to end off by, I think, more of an acknowledgement than anything else. You know, we, we who've watched and loved golf, the South Africans, have kind of grown up with you on the microphone, and obviously you've had an incredibly successful uh, career before that. I don't know how many people have always acknowledged what, what you've done for the sport, but I wanted to take the opportunity to, I think probably on behalf of every South African golfing fan, to, I think, just say thank you for... You know, the, I think the passion and the, and the energy that you've brought to the commentary box, the knowledge. I mean, I think I've learned more from your commentary than I've learned from school, to be honest. Um, but, <laughs> you know, so have I. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's, been, it's been awesome. And I, it's such a treat to be able to spend some time with you and pick your brain on these topics. I, I hope that the, you're not hanging up the boots anytime soon. But yeah, I look forward to hearing you for, for a few more years in, in the commentary box. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate I appreciate those words. And, you know, it's, I've gone for the longest time without working, you know, because I absolutely love what I do. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it's, it's, uh, it's I can't wait. For, I can't wait for the next tournament. I can't wait for the next day to go to SWAT Corp and see what's happening at the club. I can't wait for, you know, anything to do with golf. I can't wait for my next books arriving from Amazon my next new golf books that I can read. <laughs> so I just, I, I just, I'm passionate about all aspects of this game. That's it for today, guys. If this episode brought you value, please do subscribe to the podcast series. And for more information on building your organizational culture, visit us at rcaconsulting.biz. We'll see you in the next episode.